Good morning. If you got your Bibles with me, turn with me to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, and you might as well, if you've got a Bible that's got one of these little tassels on there, you might as well go ahead and mark that spot because we're going to be in 1 Corinthians for a little while. If you're new with us, we preach through books of the Bible. That's just the way we, we, we sort of roll here, and we've been working through Psalms. We hit Psalms 50 and uh, 51, and we've taken a little break from Psalms, and we're going to land in 1 Corinthians. And uh, the last couple weeks, we've sort of just been setting the groundwork for 1 Corinthians. We looked at Ephesians and talked about the blessings that come. We begin to think about what does a gospel life in a church look like anyway. And last week, we looked at both our culture and the Greco-Roman culture that 1 Corinthians is sitting in. And so today, again, a little bit of a different message. And next week, and matter of fact, I hope you've got your sermon notes. I also hope you have this with you. You should be one sitting in a seat near you. Do you have that? You hold it up and wave it at me. Everybody knows we got one. Absolutely. This is your curriculum for your growth groups. This is, and I'll mention this before, here's, here's what this is meant to help you do. It's meant to help you know how to study your Bible on your own so then you can not only grow yourself, but go help other people make disciples that makes disciples. That's the, that's the design of it. And you'll see us use it even today as you should begin to fill in some of those things. And um, By the way, another missional opportunity, we... Uh, forego VBS this year in order to work with Kings Mountain, and we are completely in charge of the games at, at the Beach Blast is coming Saturday, and our goal is to put us around to people that, that God has called us to bring the gospel to bear, and this is a simple way that we all could do and be a part of that. Please sign up out in the lobby for that. Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. We've sort of been building to this. That's the main idea today. We've been talking about gospel life. This is the third week. We've defined it this way. Living for Christ out of the spiritual blessings given by Christ in the age in which we live. We live in a post-Christian, secular, pluralistic age. That's the age that you live in. That's the age that your kids are going to college in. Corinthians lived in the Greco-Roman age. We both live for Christ. We both get spiritual blessings. Christ is the wisdom and power from which His church lives. He's the source. You see, the Corinthians is much like the American church. We have fell prey to the high cost of a secular and pluralistic age. And they have, and we by and large, have ourselves. No need for God's wisdom in life or ministry. Isn't that scary? It's scary that you can do life. Listen, Mike and I can do church and so can you. Without the wisdom and the power of God and the world will say, my goodness, look at that. That's a scary reality. That was the Corinthian reality. Remember we stopped in Acts last week. Paul's preaching in Athens. In Acts 18.1, it says he leaves Athens and goes to Corinth. Paul would spend a year and a half or so at Corinth, planning the church, establishing the leaders, establishing 
the apostles' doctrine. Apollos would spend time as, as well. If there's a map, you got that map? Just to give you some idea here. So he's in Acts 17, he's in Athens. And then in Acts 18, he comes down to Corinth. Corinth is on this, you see this little strip of land right here. This is what made Corinth so important strategically. Notice they're, they're a port on both sides. Got this Asian Italy here going on. And, and they were on this little strip of land here. This made them highly important in the Greek age and in the Roman age. This is the context of the letter. In 146 B.C., Ancient Corinth was destroyed by Rome when Rome was taken over what would see as the known world. In 44 BC, Corinth was founded and rebuilt as a Roman colony. It was so important of where it was located there that it became the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It was about AD 50 to AD 51 that Paul plants the church. He spends 18 months there. It is about three years later that he writes this letter from Ephesus. So about 54 to 55 A.D. Paul then, only about a year or two later, writes 2 Corinthians from Macedonia. So who lived in Corinth? It was made up of about a third of the population were slaves. Interesting. Slavery was a normal part of life in that culture as we know. Didn't matter whether you were poor or rich. Remember class system? Very poor, very rich. Not a whole lot of middle class going on there. But everybody aimed to be prosperous. It was a materialistic age. Didn't matter who you were. The word Corinth was a byword for sexual promiscuity. To be a Corinthian was to be promiscuous. Someone wanted to make you call you a name. That's what they would call you. The Greek prostitutes from the day would wear sandals with follow me on the bottom. And so when they walked in the dirt, it would say, follow me. And they would continually go up to the temple where men would follow them. This is the culture. Most of the church then, think about this, is made up of these Greek and Roman converts into the body of Christ. The church, the Corinthian church, was made up of both poor and wealthy class, although the wealthy class, not surprisingly, wielded the most influence, and we'll see that as we go through this section. purpose this morning is not to look at any particular text in depth, but to just give you a general overview. Next week, we'll look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 9 in depth. I want you to just see a couple things this morning. One is... Just not to think of Paul as some kind of itinerant evangelist or church planner that does his work and moves on, he's done. Next. No, he's not. That's not who he is. And if you think that about Paul, you're going to mischaracterize him. He is a man. He is a pastor. He is a counselor. And listen, this is what I want you to get. He cares immensely for the local church. That's why he is so undone. Paul, you got in this letter. He is out of his sockets. When he hears what's happening. Because he gets a troubling report. Look at chapter 1 verse 11. It's what he's hearing. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people. That there is quarreling among you my brothers. So what are we seeing? What report is he getting back? Some 
few years after his church is planted, all the hard work that he's done, the leaders are there, he's hearing that there's internal conflict going on. Now flip over, we're just going to flip back and forth, back and forth inside of 1 Corinthians today. Look at chapter 5, look at verse 1. Breathtaking reality going on in the church. This is the honesty of Scripture. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you of a kind which is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. Incest going on inside the church. There is not only internal conflict, there is moral compromise. This is the overall issues that are going on. Paul writes this letter. So how in the world? It's a church. Look at chapter 1. Back to chapter 1 now. Look at verse 22. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what we can say What Paul is seeing when he gets the report back is there is an obvious, visible lack of godly wisdom and lack of Holy Spirit power within the church. Paul's not okay with it. So Paul writes letters and sends people. We see it all through his letters. You see, the gospel life is to be lived together as the church. This is not a letter to individual people. This is a letter to the church. The local church. Paul loves the church. He is disturbed by what is going on in the church. And so we can back up from 1 Corinthians and look at everything. And there's just all kind of things we've got to talk about over the next little while. And put them in basically four categories, but three characteristics. So what should be true? What should be visible? What should be the marks of a wise, spirit-filled church? It should be holiness. And it should be unity. And it should be love. We could say it another way of what's conflict, compromise. How do we deal with that? The antidote is the supremacy of the gospel. That's chief in this letter. And it is for them to remember that they have not just been called to get out of hell. They've been called to promote holiness and to live in unity with each other, and to love God and love each other. Four marks of a wise, spirit-filled church then. And the first one, the preeminent one, this is just not a mark beside the rest of them. This is the preeminent. First two chapters is the mark of the gospel. It is the essential center of the church, of which when she loses it, we see what happens right here in Corinth. Look then at the gospel just going to look at a couple of places. Look at the very beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ and our brother Sosthenes. Verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call on the name, upon the name of the Lord, both the, their Lord and ours. So unity in the body of Christ. This letter is written to the church. Who is the church? 
Look at verse 1. It's to those who have been called by Christ. In turn in verse 2, we can see it's also those who have called themselves upon the name of Christ. You see that? You got God's sovereignty calling them. You got them calling on Christ. You also have them being sanctified. So if you've got your sheet and you begin to work through this, who is the author? We see it right here. The author is Paul. And listen, there is no dispute about his authorship in 1 Corinthians. This is the apologist's dream book. If you want to be an apologist and proclaim the truth, 1 Corinthians is a wonderful letter to get to know. He is the author, and the local church of Corinth is the recipient. Notice what his preeminence, though. Look at verse 16 in chapter 1. They're fighting about who's following who and who baptized who in verse 17 he says for Christ did not send me to baptize but to do what what does he say to preach the gospel not with eloquent not with words of eloquent wisdom lest the cross be emptied of its what power in other words the cross does not need my creativity it demands my clarity it's the power of God for salvation that's the preeminence of the gospel to the nations and especially to his church. Look down at verse 23. Again, he says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, it's the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see it? There's only, in other words, he's saying there's only one thing that saves. I've got one tool in my pocket. It's the gospel. It's the only thing. Here's what it says, verse 25. The only thing that makes one wise. Chapter 2 then, continuing with the eminence, preeminence of the gospel. Look at verse 1 to 5. He's saying this over and over. I didn't come to you, brothers. I didn't proclaim to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except what? Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message, not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith may not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Christ is the wisdom and the power of God, but this must be especially true in His church. And it wasn't. It's the problem. That was the preeminent issue Paul wants to deal with from the get-go. Listen, this is important. The gospel is not another program beside other ministries. It is the essential heart in all ministry. And if it is not, that ministry is ultimately a failure, though it does much good. It's the preeminence of the gospel. And yet, there's characteristics that begin to flow once the gospel is held preeminent. Have you ever talked to someone or read an article about people with, who are twins or even triplets? There's some kind of mysterious bond that exists between them. So it is in these characteristics. Holiness, unity, and love. There are three links of a chain that hang here on the premise of the gospel. And when you read this letter, they're all overlapping. So there's no linear here. These things are all in here. It's woven into the very fabric of this letter. So let's look at a few of them. First, we see that the church should have a characteristic, a mark of holiness. That is, we are distinct. You see this in all of Scripture, from the old to the new. 
1 Corinthians 1, 21. It says, For since in, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God, through wisdom it pleased God through, listen, the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This, in other words, to the world now, the wisdom of God is foolishness. In other words, you could say, it's strange. Did you know that you're strange? You're, you're strange. You're a strange person with a strange message. It's a strange kind of wisdom. But it's a saving message. You see the faith there? <laughs> Paul's in Athens. You remember Acts 17? He starts proclaiming Jesus Christ is crucified. And what did they say? What's this babbler talking about? Strange man with the strange beliefs. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are, here it is again, folly to him. He is not able to understand. In other words, you can sometimes, you ever done this, been speaking and talking about Jesus, and someone's looking at you like, that's the strangest thing I ever heard in my life. You've got to be kidding me. It says the natural man is not able to receive it. There's just foolishness to him. But it is the only message that saves we are distinct because we are God's special people. You see, we are strange to the world, but special to God. Turn with me to chapter 3. You just see this. There again, I'm just picking different texts. I hope you're probably familiar with 1 Corinthians. Say, why don't, you, why don't you use that text? Why don't you go in there? We're going there when we get there. Just giving us an overview this morning. Chapter 3, look at verse 16. Do you not know that you are God's temple? That God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is what? Holy. And you are that temple. We are called to be holy because we are his. We are strange to the world because we are his. But what he cares about immensely in this that the practical mark of the gospel preeminence in the church is holiness and it looks like purity in absolutely every area of the life of the church members. Ask a pastor. I dare you to do it this week. Ask the church member. Ask them if their church practices biblical church discipline and they will probably look at you one of two ways, like you're a member of a cult or like you're just strange. Unfortunately, fortunately, that's exactly what we're going to deal with in 1 Corinthians. It's because there is a purity issues within the body of Christ. There is purity issues in their morality. Chapter 5 again. I read an article this week that stated that most young Christians that are not married yet thinks premarital sex is absolutely acceptable and that it is not a moral issue. Members of the church, it wasn't an issue here either. Why wasn't it? Because it wasn't in the culture. Chapter 5, look at verse 5. We've already talked about this issue's incest within the church. Here's what he says. You are to deliver to this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. I did not say that. God's word did. Is Paul speaking to the man in sin or to the church? 
the church. Is he ripped out of his socket simply because the man is in sin or because the church is tolerating it? Because the church is tolerating it. That's the, that's the picture. He's not yelling at that man. He's yelling at the church. Far worse than a church in which someone commits adultery is a church that says nothing about people who commit adultery. A church must practice church discipline precisely because it cares about the purity of the church and the witness of the church in the community that it resides. Love without holiness is not biblical love. Brother, if you say you love your wife and you're looking at porn, that's not biblical love, that's Corinthian love. And Paul means to correct it because the gospel is at stake. Their purity in their morality. He cares about the purity and the way they resolve conflicts among themselves. You can look at chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. And he says, I cannot believe that you as two Christians would sue each other. That you would go to a secular court and resolve your differences. What is he saying he goes on to say, we'll look at it when we get there. It's the failure of an undermining of the church. He cares about how we resolve conflicts. He cares about our purity. He cares about the way we live our everyday lives. Notice chapter 6 and verse 9 and 10. It says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Why is that so important? We'll talk about it more when we get there. But false teachers, you see, were teaching the philosophy of the day. You're simply a, a group of atoms, just molecules stuck together. And if that's true, your soul's more important than your body, and it doesn't matter what you do with your body anyway. This is alive and well. I hear people say it all the time. When I die, it doesn't matter what happened to my body. 1 Corinthians 15, brothers and sisters, just does not agree. One of the greatest teachings of the body and the soul he uses to talk about, because Christ is resurrected physically, so will you. It's a beautiful passage. He cares about our purity, our body and soul. He cares about our purity and our marriages. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 24 is going to deal with purity in marriage. Chapters 25 to 40, chapter 7, verses 25 to 40 is going to deal with purity in singleness. He cares about how you live as the church. In other words, if you're single today, living in purity affects the body of Christ. It matters to the local church. If you're a widow or a widower, you're... Purity and singleness matters. I love chapter 7, verse 17. Summary of all of that. He says, Only let each person lead the lives that the Lord has assigned to him, to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Be content if you're married. Be content if you're single. Be content if you're widow. And trust God to live in the situation he has called you to. And don't miss the obvious, brothers and sisters. He is not speaking to mere individuals. He is speaking to us collectively as the local church. That's the letter. That's the context. But what we do individually affects us collectively. This is a gospel issue. When you see holiness, you should also see unity. It's our second characteristic. So me and Christina have been married 25 years 
Who has been married longer than 25 years? All right. How long? Uh-oh. Clap, Connie. <laughs> 39 years. 50 years. 46. Uh-oh, you're in trouble. You're eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich for lunch today. So here's the question. 40, 50 years did unity in your marriage come the minute you slipped that ring on? Yeah, yeah, right. No, no, it oftentimes got worse before it got better. Unity is something that's a gift from God, but we still have to fight for it, amen? It's not easy. The hallmark, bro, you got to get this. This is a gospel issue. I don't understand the racial divide in the church today. If we understood the gospel... The hallmark of the unity of the church is that Jews and Gentiles are now in one united family. That's the point. That's the gospel truth. The church was a light in the nations of that. They hated each other. Now they're one family. Don't you know that in Kings Mountain or Cherville or Bessemer City and in Corinth we have our own community markers that identify us with a particular community? Whether it's the Hispanic community or the white community or the black community or the people who live at the golf course or the people who ride motorcycles. We have these identity markers that we get ourselves in these clannish groups. And what Paul is saying is that started in the church. And we are one in Christ. One family. One people. Unity is important. And unity, listen, is affected by holiness that's why you can't take one without the other. Sin leads to disunity. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 12, we see this disunity. They're saying, I follow Paul, and I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, that's Peter. Other people say, I don't follow none of them people. I follow Jesus, Right? I love this. Verse 13. Here's the question that we all should answer. Is Christ divided? No. (laughs) Right answer. Uh, No. You see, pride is bringing disunity. People thinking they have the right to to reject this group and accept this group. People valuing the, the messenger over the message. It's pride. We only see it there. You see it in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3. Paul says, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. Verse 2, I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready for it, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is, listen, jealousy and strife among you, are you not in the, of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? So what's causing disunity? Jealousy and strife. Just a question. Remember people were suing each other in chapter 6? Why would two Christians sue each other? Greed. Pride, greed, and jealousy exist in the church today. Been an elder for many years. I've dealt with that issue right there in chapter 6. Look at... Remember chapter 4? I mean chapter 5, verse 6? Incest in the church. What was causing disunity? 
His toleration of sin. Look at, look at verse 6 in chapter 5. Know the context. You're putting up with this incest within the church. Your boasting is not good. Look at what he says. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Leaven in the Bible is a sign for sin. It's for wickedness. If you, don't, if you don't check that in the body of Christ, the whole lump, the whole loaf, the whole church becomes sinful and disunity is the result. You see the necessity of biblical, loving, restorative church discipline in the church to ensure not only holiness but unity amongst God's distinct holy people. Mark Dever, good quote. Sobering quote, but a good quote. Says this, quote, When the church divides for carnal reasons, they identify themselves with something other than Christ. They become the church of modern music or the church of this pastor or the church of the homeschooler or the church of the Democrats or the church of the blue carpet. As soon as this happens, they are no longer the church of Jesus Christ. And though a church may be unified around any issue, this unity is not true Christian unity. End quote. You see, we've got holiness that links to unity and we've got unity that links to love. How are the churches to you be united? Paul's got a blazing chapter in this letter. Love. We are united in love, but not love without holiness. And you don't have either without the gospel. But chapters 8 to 14, we're going to deal with extensively. It's about my love and consideration of you and your love and consideration of me. And our love and consideration from people without the church. You don't have to look at it. Just take this in. Chapter 8 is concerned. It says love governs our Christian freedom. Chapter 11 says love must inform our corporate worship. Chapters 12 to 14 says love is actually behind every spiritual gift. As a matter of fact, right in the middle of his talk of spiritual gift is chapter 13. that says if you don't have love, nothing matters. You have the greatest gift in the world. You just sound like beating two pans together. If there's not love. And to end of the chapter in chapter 16. Love drives our Christian benevolence. And love drives our own generosity. Not only amongst ourselves. But amongst all the churches. To that end before we move on. You might see at the end. A couple of us are going to slip out. After I preach. We're going to slip out. We're going to another church. To teach first impressions. Older church who doesn't have. Any way to greet people when they come in. They're doing a revitalization. They've asked us to come and help to teach them how to do first impressions. Brothers and sisters, that's love. We're the church. We're together. I love them. How much I've prayed for them since I've been meeting with this pastor. We're supposed to love each other. We're not supposed to have our clans. We're not a clan. We're a local body of church. But we also love the Wesleyans. We love the Methodists. We love First Baptists. If not, we're in sin. God cares about it. Love connects us together. The gospel holds us together. Holiness, unity, and love is made to build up the church as a whole. Matter of fact, you can look at verse chapter 14, verse 12 and 17. He's getting into spiritual gifts there. And he says, dealing with speaking in tongues. He's sitting there going, you're going to get into that? So I'll get into it when the text gets into it. <laughs> Absolutely. The goal, build up the church in verse 12. And build up in each other in verse 17. 
Notice, nowhere in this so far has your individual self come up. Isn't that what Jesus said? Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. You see, this is like a marriage. If there's only one person in the marriage concerned about building up the other person, one person starves, the other one is built up. This must be we're building each other up. This is why we're a church. This is why we're a family. I'm concerned about your spiritual growth. You're concerned about mine. And when we do that, we all grow. I'm concerned about your holiness. You ought to be concerned about mine. Why is this important? You know, why didn't? Here's the question. I mean, the Corinthians church is one church over many that Paul planted. Why didn't he say, you know, I, I worked hard there three years. These people done, they ain't got sin in the camp. I'm just done. Let's just, let's just mark them off the list. We're not going to send our newsletters to them anymore. We're not going to send people over there. We're going to cut off their funding. Ixnay on the Corinthian church, eh? No more. But what did he do? Oh, here's what he did. Now, this is not funny, but it is, but it's not. He didn't go back to Corinth and find the people that wasn't quarreling and find the people that were moral and go start Second Corinthian church. It's not what he did. He fought for it. Why? Why is it important today? If the church steps into sin, not whether it's our church or someone else's, because we exist to reflect the glory of God, and we do it when we reflect the character of God. That's the purpose. No, you cannot reflect the character of God and the glory of God as an individual as much as we can when we are united together. That's the point of the church. The character of the church should reflect the character of God. Paul says this, follow me as I follow Christ. Chapter 2, verse 16 says, it is we, the church, who has the very mind of Christ. We don't desire to be holy this morning because we're trying to obtain some kind of perfect holiness or because we're trying to get something or because we're trying to blackmail God to give us something that we really want. No, we Desire to be holy because our God is holy. This book is given to us as a love letter. And when it tells us something, it is a loving thing for God to say, don't do that. Run from that. Run towards that. That's what Paul was reminding them. We are not trying to be holy. According to 1 Corinthians 6, 11, we were washed we were sanctified and we were justified. Here's what he's saying. You need to live like who you are. You're a child of God. You're holy. You're mine. You're special. You're distinct. You're one with that person. Live like it. Live like it. Christ is not divided and neither should we be. The church is united because God is one. He is undivided. When we come to the tables, what do we remember? You just don't come to the table as an individual remembering your individual salvation. You come remembering your salvation and God has made you one with His church and with Himself. And we praise the Lord for it. Because listen, here's the truth. In reality, me and you may have never chosen to be one with each other. God, through Christ, made us one. And we are to be one because He is one. The church is loving ultimately because God is loving. 
he's proven it, hasn't he? 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of him. Not because you chose him. Not because you did something. Not because you prayed a prayer, checked the box, joined the church. You're in the family of God because of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. And so, this is what drives. When I, when someone challenges me or when someone rebukes me for something that I've done, I should receive it as someone who loves me, if in fact they do. You see, but what's the use, though, to reflect the character of God? Well, simply to each other? I mean, what's the ultimate point, right? I mean, why are you really here? Why does God just not save us and take us on to heaven? We could reflect the character of God there, couldn't we? Won't that be what we're going to do for eternity? Absolutely. So why am I here? I mean, man, this stinks. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to be one with each other, right? It's hard to be married 50 years. We exist to magnify to the world the character of God. That's why we are here. And that's why Paul is so upset that the church is bickering amongst itself. And he doesn't even see the lost people around him. And we could fall into the same. So this morning... Let's draw this to a close. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10. And again, we're going to look at every verse in detail and context. I'm just giving you a general flavor. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. Notice these Two groups of people giving no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. You see that? We glorify God by giving no offense to those outside the church and those within the church. Verse 33. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, why? That they may be saved. Brothers and sisters, that's why the church is here. We are here to reflect the glory of God by the character of God within the people of God to the nations so that they might be saved and render to God the glory he deserves. We're about to sing. Got this verse in my ear. Chapter 11 verse 1. He then says following that. You be imitators of me church. As I am an imitator of Christ. Why? So we can love like you. That's what we're about to sing. Keeping you first in all we do. So we can let your light shine through to love the world and to show them that you're everything. Amen. That's our purpose. And brothers and sisters, plant your lives within a local church. Plant them here and let's do this together. Let's pray. So Lord, we thank you. 
there's not a person seated here that deserves to be in your family. And left to myself, I would not be in your family. And I wouldn't even know it, a problem. But by God's grace, we are here today, and we have not only heard the gospel, but we have heard that you established a church, and that she's precious to you. They're made up of souls. God, we are a, a bunch of leaky pots. We need to be constantly filled and taken care of. Thank you for your patience and your long suffering for us. So, Lord, we long right now to respond to what we have heard. And as one church, we, we, we want to stand, Lord. We desire to proclaim to you for you to receive the worship. And then, Lord, we desire to give out of a generous heart. And then we, de we desire to go to the, our neighbors and to our families and to the nations. Help us, God. But now, Lord, may we give you the worship that you deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.